And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Now, here we are, Halloween 2016, and man, do I have a subject matter for you that will rival that incredible rhyme I just laid on you. Uh, And there's another rhyme, by the way. I am talking with Richard Trask, the current keeper of Salem Witch Trial Knowledge, the man who holds that history in the palm of his hand. He's the archivist for the Danvers Historical Society, and he is going to talk to me about the Salem Witch Trials, and we are going to learn a lot of lessons Lessons that as a country and as a species even, I'll, I'll even paint broad strokes with that, we have yet to learn and really internalize. Witch hunts are currently still happening. And I'm, I, I'll give you a perfect example that's going on right now. There are clowns, there's, there's clown mania, hysteria sweeping the nation right as we speak. I don't know how this started. I don't really know why people are that worried about it. But here it is. Uh, I can't tell you how many rumors I've heard and speculation uh, that just isn't true. None of it's true at all. People are losing their freaking minds over this thing. It still happens. Uh, we got a lot to learn. Uh, let's just jump right into this with Richard Trask. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for being on the program today. You're welcome. Uh, so now you are arguably the the greatest witch trial historian that the world has ever known, correct? I wouldn't go that far. It sounds nice, but I wouldn't go that far. I probably one of about uh, 20 people who know a lot about it. Well, now, how did you get into this? Now, you live in what is was is considered Salem, but it's not Salem. It's actually Danvers, which is something we're going to get into the history of the area in a second. But you live right in the ground zero of this place, right? That's right. Yep. Yeah, I was born uh, in Danvers. Danvers used to be known as Salem Village. And um, growing up... Um, when I would go to my grandparents' house, um, they would mention every once in a while about the witch in our family uh, tree. And they had a book uh, from the 19th century called Witchcraft at Salem by uh, a guy named Nevins. And um, I would take a look at it every once in a while. So as a kid, I just kind of had that kind of experience. And anyone who lives in this area knows about the witchcraft. Uh, so um, I also had an interest in history all my life, so uh, the two kind of melded when I uh, uh, became uh, a professional uh, archivist. So who is the witch in your family tree? Well, the one we knew about back in the 1950s was a woman named Mary Esty. Most people haven't heard about her so much, but they have they know anything about witchcraft, they've heard of her uh, sister, uh, Rebecca Nurse, who's probably the most famous of the witchcraft victims. But both uh, Mary Esty, Rebecca Nurse, and a third sister, Sarah Cloyce, were accused of witchcraft in 1692. And uh, 
uh, Rebecca and Mary were brought to trial, uh, found guilty, and hanged uh, uh, in that year. So I knew about them. And then uh, just as an adult, and when I got more involved in history and a little bit in my own family history, I found out that um, another fairly well-known uh, witchcraft victim, John Proctor, turned out to be a direct uh, grandparent. Uh, and John Proctor, um, for most people who have heard the name before, are familiar with it from Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, in which he's the uh, one of the chief characters in the play. And he was also hanged in uh, August of 1692. So I have two hanged witches, and then there are several others who were related to them who weren't hanged, but they were... Um, uh, arrested uh, and thrown in prison for a period of time. Mary Estie, if anything, was one of the shining Christians in all of this because she actually wrote a, a petition to the governor and to the judges uh, prior to her execution uh, asking that since she knew she was innocent and believed that others who were also uh, in jail with her were innocent, uh, she asked them to... Uh, please um, look more diligently to it because uh, although she knew her time was coming and uh, was not afraid uh, of death, uh, she knew other innocent people could also be uh, hanged. Now, so so I, think to, I think to really understand what went on there, and I've been kind of fascinated with this story forever. I think this is, uh, I mean, it's a remarkable time in our history for several different reasons, but to really get down to the nitty-gritty, um, you, you kind of have to parse this thing out on three different levels, and I think you're the guy to do it. You really have to understand uh, the local history. You have to understand religious history, specifically the Puritans, and also the history of witchcraft to kind of understand how all three of these things kind of culminated in this event, uh, this very specific event in American, early in American history. It wasn't even really American history. It was colonial history. Uh, so, so let's, let's start, um, let's start at the top. I think the oldest part of that, maybe the history of witchcraft. Can you give me a brief history of, of the belief of witchcraft, both in Europe and how it came over here? Yep. Well, uh, in Europe, um, there was always a belief in witches, but it wasn't until around the 13th century, uh, in, uh, continental Europe that uh, the theory started uh, being uh, promulgated that witches were, in fact, uh, not uh, um, knowledgeable people who understood uh, natural ways, but were, in fact, people who were in league with the devil, had made covenants with and were serving the devil against all the Christian community. And... Uh, beginning with the Catholic Church and later as the Protestant churches emerged, uh, you had them believing that witchcraft was a real and present danger uh, and that uh, anyone who practiced witchcraft uh, had to be found uh, and um, uh, tortured uh, to uh, indicate that they, in fact, were in league with the devil and then uh, dispatched, uh, uh, killed. Uh, in England, it came a little bit later, uh, but it did come uh, by the 14th century. And witchcraft in Europe during that time, from the 13th to the early 17th century, uh, was a very uh, 
dismal time for uh, witchcraft in that uh, tens of thousands of witches were discovered in all of the Catholic and Protestant uh, uh, countries at that time, uh, were persecuted and uh, either hanged in England or burned at the stake in uh, the continent. And it was a very decimating uh, period of time in which a lot of innocent people, very often women rather than men, uh, would be found out. Uh, you actually had witch finders who would go from village to village looking for uh, suspected witches and uh, ferreting them out. By the late, uh, by the uh, 17th century, um, and the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment coming to uh, England and some of the slower-moving uh, countries, um, they started saying that maybe witchcraft wasn't quite uh, what we had thought it was. And there got to be a lot of discussions, a lot of uh, books being written and counter-books being written about uh, the theories of witchcraft. And uh, by 1692, in England, witchcraft was probably still believed by most of the, the common people, but the intellectual and the religious um, uh, types were beginning to think that they had certainly gone way too far. And uh, Salem witchcraft actually is the, the last major gasp of witchcraft persecution in the world. The interesting thing is, although tens of thousands, if not millions of people were um, killed over several centuries in Europe. Uh, Salem witchcraft is the uh, subject that worldwide people know of. And it's interesting how that little dynamic of Salem, which only uh, hanged 19 people, killed um, an additional uh, several took care of about 150 uh, suspected witches, uh, has now become the uh, epicenter of uh, the belief in uh, historic witchcraft. That is kind of weird. I mean, there was a guy, you were talking about witch finders, there's a guy named Matthew Hopkins who was called the general witch finder who, quote-unquote, discovered about 200 on his own. Um, so that, you know, a guy like that in history definitely would overshadow from a sheer number standpoint what happened in Salem. But... You know, you are right. I think maybe because, you know, it is known worldwide and maybe, you know, I don't I don't have a worldwide perspective on it. But from an American centered standpoint, uh, it, it is a very strange just looking back on it with modern eyes. It is a very strange part of our of our world. But it also kind of it, it accentuates some of the religious fanaticism that went on. I mean, we are you know a nation of, you know, the freedom of religion, which I understand. But that freedom of religion also allowed people to come over here who had different beliefs that allowed them to persecute people. Um, so let's let's get into the religious aspect of this. Uh, so there, there was a thing called white magic. People really did practice this to help with their agriculture and fortune telling and things like that that wasn't considered like dark magic, correct? Well, uh, in a Puritan community such as Massachusetts, any kind of witchcraft, white or black, was considered diabolical and therefore bad. But uh, the common people... Uh, very often would practice or at least um, uh, dabble with uh, white witchcraft. It's not too dissimilar today from 
oh, Christians or Jews in this country who uh, have their religious beliefs, but they also read the astrology column in the newspaper, or they might mm. think it's okay. good to have a, a rabbit's foot with them, or uh, they do certain things that would ward off uh, evil. Um, that's not in the tenets of, of those uh, religious uh, beliefs, um, and it really goes back to the dark arts, but it's something that um, kind of coexists with uh, religion in America. Okay, like water witching and things like that, like using dowel rods to, um, to, to find right. water and things like that. Uh, dowsing rods, I'm sorry, dowsing rods. Mm -hmm. um, so now... now Let's talk about the Puritan religion because there was a very real belief which kind of sparked this whole witchcraft thing that the devil really existed and that supernatural events really existed around them. Like that was their paradigm. And because of that, you you could uh, make a pact with the devil to get powers in exchange for um, – uh, for I, I I don't know what the I, I guess the deals didn't exist, but what were the what was the belief that women were giving the devil in order to gain these magic powers? Well, first of all, um, it wasn't just the Puritan thing. Uh, Puritanism is a, um, a a break off from uh, the Anglican Church, uh, but uh, the the literal belief in a devil was something that all Christians believed both Protestant and Catholic. Uh, and because they believed in a literal devil, and that literal devil could entice humans to uh, become cohorts of his uh, to gain uh, little magic powers or uh, information or, or uh, whatever, um, they were looked upon as being very dangerous to the Christian community because what they wanted to do was bring down uh, Christ and uh, his kingdom on earth. Uh, therefore, everyone at different periods of time from the 13th century to the 17th believed that um, witchcraft was a real and present danger. Uh, and uh, they had to ferret out uh, these obnoxious people who were trying to uh, bring ruin to them themselves. Um, Puritans uh, also believe this, and um, in a community such as uh, the New World, in which they were fighting all sorts of uh, dangers, the aboriginals that they thought were uh, cohorts of the, of the devil, um, weather and so forth, uh, witchcraft was just another thing that they had to worry about. Well, you know, I was listening to to an interview. It was like a, a roundtable discussion that you and a couple other experts were having, and a woman named Catherine Howe made a really interesting point where she said that it's not dissimilar. You know, if you took in the literature, took the word witch out and replaced it with terrorist, uh, or if you're a sci-fi fan, replace it with Cylon, you kind of have the same fervor. Like even today, you know, if you're thinking of terrorist these people we do we're doing crazy things today that in the eyes of history i think you know 50 100 years down the road it's going to look just as is um fanatical uh, however the people who were you know you bring up a good point that like the people in salem the people at the time even were believing that they were doing god's work like this wasn't a malicious attempt to to harm people for the most part some people obviously use this for their own to their own ends but i think that you know what you're saying is that 
this was a belief and they thought that they were doing good on earth, uh, which is something to keep in mind as we, you know, for the people listening to keep in mind as we explore this story. I also want to just put, bring one other point in here because um, we're talking about witches being hanged. And I think typically you hear about witches being burned at the stake. But from the way I understand it is that in Europe, witchcraft was a crime against the church and therefore deemed heresy and people were burned for that. And then in England, it was actually considered a crime against the state, which is why they were hanged. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Yep. It's kind of funny when you think about that witchcraft was actually a crime against the state. Like, I can understand it being a crime against the church. Like, that totally makes sense to me. But um, the fact that a state-run government would say that being a witch was a crime against them, you know, I'm I'm no libertarian necessarily, but it does seem like— the government kind of really getting into the lives of the people, you know. Well, of course, uh, in in the Puritan in the Puritan Commonwealth in, in Massachusetts, uh, you know, Massachusetts had been established by Puritans, and uh, they tried to keep uh, any other religious groups out. And therefore, although there was somewhat of a separation of church and state ministers. Uh, uh, usually didn't get too involved in in civil matters um it was still a a a religiously established commonwealth uh so the government was trying to protect uh its own uh against um uh these um uh, terrible people who were trying to uh, overthrow not only god's kingdom but also uh, the civil authority that makes sense. They're kind of protecting their own interests. Um, now, let's talk about Salem, the community. Um, and by Salem, there was, I guess would be Danvers. The community which this happened was called Salem Village, and there's Salem Town. Um, so instead of me confusing people, can you mind explaining a little bit about the local history of the area? Sure. Um, Massachusetts uh, was uh, established separately from uh, Plymouth, uh, which was uh, uh, established around 1620. Um, a separate uh, economic uh, partnership, uh, the Massachusetts Bay Company, uh, established um, the Massachusetts colony um, at Salem beginning in 1626, uh, 1627. And um, what you had was some settlers coming with, uh, with a governor uh, who established uh, uh, a rough settlement here. Eventually they moved when more Puritans migrated to the New World, uh, to Boston, and made that its capital. Um, but these people came and uh, started settling uh, as a uh, corporate entity. And Salem uh, was uh, originally called Nomkeg, which was an Indian name. And um, the settlers decided upon the, the name Salem, uh, which means peace in Hebrew, Shalom. Uh, and uh, Salem was a very vast uh, piece of uh, territory uh, when it was established. As time went on, various other communities broke off and became independent communities from the town of Salem. Uh, One area that remained part of Salem uh, until 1752 was Salem Village, which was outside of the main settlement, more to the west. 
about five miles from the center of Salem, and uh, that place became known as Salem Village to differentiate it from Salem Town. And in 1752, after about 100 years of struggle wanting to become independent, the villages in Salem were able to establish an independent community, which was then named Danvers. So although most people will make a beeline to Salem to see where the witchcraft uh, started, in fact, it happened in Salem Village, and uh, Salem Village today is the town of Danvers. So we have a number of sites uh, in Danvers that are associated with the original uh, Salem uh, witchcraft uh, incidents. Although Salem, being the Shire community, the, the top community within Essex County, uh, was the place where the trials themselves took place. But most people, when they read about the Salem witchcraft trials and hear Rebecca Nurse claiming I'm as innocent as a child unborn, aren't really listening to the transcripts of the trials, but of the preliminary hearings. And those almost uh, all in the early months of 1692 took place in Salem Village. You were talking about the struggle between Salem Town and Salem Village, Salem Town being the bigger settlement. There, there was also a struggle to, to have kind of like a religious independence. And so that's kind of, uh, can you talk about that and then how the, um, the church was set up in Salem Village? Sure. Every community would have an established church, a Puritan uh, church. Um, and um, the church, the word church actually refers to the congregation itself, the, the body of believers. And what every community would do is they would build a meeting house uh, where they would worship on Sundays and often on Wednesdays. Uh, and the meeting house would also be kind of a civil center where they would have their town meetings and so forth. And um, the people who had settled in Salem Village, five to ten miles away from Salem Town, if they wanted to go to religious services or to a town meeting, they would have to go that long distance. And um, maybe they could go most times, but in times of crisis like the King Philip Indian War and whatever, they were very concerned about going so far away from their own homesteads uh, to Salem Town and having uh, the village unprotected. So they began petitioning, as many other sections of Salem did over the years, to be able to establish their own town and their own church. Salem didn't want them to because this was really the breadbasket for Salem Town. Salem Town was, uh, in, in essence, a, a trade area and an area very important to fishing, but uh, very few uh, people engaged in farming, uh, whereas Salem Village was the place where uh, you would be able to get your uh, raw commodities and things like that. And also, uh, a large population would ease the taxability uh, of a meeting house uh, and of uh, town government. So whereas other communities were separating from Salem, the town of Beverly uh, and other places, uh, Salem wanted to retain Salem Village. So prevented them from becoming independent until into the 18th century. Got it. So so this this church, when it was established, they were able to have some sort of separation of, of, of religious services. 
they had to find someone to lead this congregation. And so from the way I understand is they went through two different people. There was James Bailey was the first one. And then George Burroughs, whose name is going to be very important later on. But he served as the minister. And both of these guys left, uh, from what I understand, when they, when they weren't paid their full rate. Um, the fourth person to come in was a guy named um, Samuel Paris, whose name is synonymous with the witch trials. Uh, but before we get into him, I just want to talk about his pay rate. From what I understand... He got less money than everyone else, um, but he kind of negotiated an ownership of the, the land of the church itself, correct? And this kind of divided the community in a way? Yeah, if I can just back up a, a, a teeny bit. Um, in 1672, Salem said, well, you can't be independent, but if you would like to have your own meeting house, so long as you pay for it, you can have your meeting house but you're not going to be able to have an ordained minister. And if you want to baptize your children, and if you want to have communion every month, you've got to go to the mother church in Salem. So Salem Village did establish a small meeting house in 1672, which could worship, but if anything important had to be done, they would have to go to Salem Town. So there got to be a real contentiousness between the village and the town, the village wanting to be independent both uh, civilly and ecclesiastically and the, um, uh, the town not wanting them to do so. Finally, after a lot of petitions to uh, the general court, the colonial legislature, to other religious leaders and so forth, in 1688-89, Salem finally allowed Salem Village to have their own independent, uh, totally uh, independent uh, uh, ecclesiastical organization, although they still were part of Salem Town for taxation. Uh, and in 1689, the Church of Christ at Salem Village was established. And um, prior to 1689, they had had three different uh, lay ministers who came in and uh, took care of them, but they weren't um, uh, official ministers. Uh, in 1689, uh, Samuel Paris, uh, Mr. Samuel Paris, became the ordained minister and became the Reverend Mr. Samuel Paris, uh, who was their full-fledged minister in Salem Village. However, uh, the villages because of all of the contentiousness between Salem Town and Salem Village all of those years, got to have a very bad reputation of a place where everybody was always fighting everybody else. And uh, the barrel was pretty low as to uh, good ministers who would be able to uh, come to a place like this. And also, Salem Village was... Um, not very well off financially. So Samuel Paris, who had not been a minister previously, uh, then became their minister. And he was a man who had um, uh, worked uh, uh, in mercantile uh, businesses prior to becoming a minister. And um, he, he had uh, discussions with the, the village committee and was able to get from them the deed to his parsonage, the minister's house. Uh, when other members of the congregation found out about this, they said, how the hell are you doing that? You, you know, it, it was our parsonage. We built it. They should be using it uh, uh, while they minister. But once they're, he's gone, he's gone, and it should be ours. Uh, so uh, Paris began 
in Salem Village uh, with a number of people not happy. Uh, and if you had been alive in 1692 and mentioned Salem Town and Salem Village, uh, people would have said, oh, Salem Village, that's a, that's a place where uh, there's a lot of wrangling and, and uh, uh, I wouldn't try to go there. So Paris began um, partly through his own fault, but he, be, he began not with the best of uh, uh, good intentions of the people he was serving. Well, it, it, that's a that is a great su summation, and and one other thing I want to add that I think um, we're saying, but w w I want to put a fine point on is these are very small communities. Um, if I understand it correctly, Salem Village is only about maybe five hundred people. Is that too right. big a number? Yep. Okay, so these are small communities, and I've grown up in small towns. I've, I I knew a town that was about five hundred people. And in these types of communities, there it's a double-edged sword. I mean, you've got it's a very close-knit community. People look out for each other, but also, as we're about to find out, rumors can run rampant. Um, families can get into heated rivalries. Um, there's all kinds of these small-town things that that can happen. Uh, and and all of this, this 30 minutes of discussion, which I find very interesting, is all setting the table for the events that are about to unfold. So let's talk about. Um, the Salem, what what caused the Salem witch trials uh, in 1692? And, and the events of this probably took maybe, everything that we're about to talk about took maybe a year, I think. Like it started in early uh, 1692 and went into early 1693 when this whole thing ended. Uh, so, so let's talk about what happened. Um, people, so we're talking about Samuel Paris. There's three girls who kind of fall ill, and they're kind of are around Samuel Paris. I think one's his daughter, one's their friend, um, and then they start. Uh, people start looking for answers, right? Let's start there. Okay. Well, um, the interesting thing to uh, remember is that um, one of the reasons why Salem witchcraft is still very popular is, of course, number one, you've got the the diabolical in it, the, the unknown, uh, the idea about devils and witches and stuff. Uh, the other thing is um, you have so much information about Salem that you don't have in many of these other communities in Europe that had hundreds of people killed, but they maybe only have five or six documents relating to it. In Salem, Puritans always kept good records. And we have a wonderful, rich collection of over a thousand documents that relate to everything that happened during the witchcraft. Uh, the um, uh, other thing that we should uh, remember is that um, Salem witchcraft did involve a relatively small population, so we can get very knowledgeable about some of these individuals. And the other thing that makes Salem fascinating is that for all of the books that have been written, and maybe later we can talk about the more recent books that have come out, we still have no idea how it began, why it began, what the factors were. Every new book that comes out tries to get a theory for understanding the Salem witchcraft. So there's always kind of a question about why did it begin? How did it begin? Uh, it is like uh, maybe a dozen other historic events that we're always talking about uh, the Kennedy assassination, the idea that we're still not sure what exactly happened, or the Custer's last stand, or, or things like that. But 
we do know that in 1691-92, the winter was a bleak winter, and in the Paris household, uh, there was um, a number of children. Uh, one child, uh, Betty Paris, uh, started uh, going in fits, and they didn't quite understand what it was. And uh, her cousin, Abigail Williams, also began going into fits. Again, there wasn't any rhyme or reason to why it was happening. And then some of the local people who were in the community neighborhood uh, also began going into fits. So that you had four or five adolescent girls, um, ages 9 to 12 or 13, who began doing very strange things. And uh, it didn't abate. And uh, finally they tried to, they called the village doctor to see if he could tell what these were. And these were not, um, you know, Puritans weren't stupid. Maybe they didn't know the science we do today, but they knew what epilepsy was. They knew uh, uh, how children can act at times. They knew about uh, St. Elmo's fire and other things that would give symptoms that were kind of unusual. This was different. And the children were going into and having symptoms that almost seemed preternatural. And um, the ministers in the local area had prayer meetings. Uh, they would meet at the parsonage. They would unfortunately keep the children together rather than separating them. Uh, and um, it just didn't abate. Uh, the village doctor said he thought they were under an evil hand. And the person you had mentioned earlier, Mary Sibley, a neighbor of Reverend Paris, uh, decided to see if maybe she could figure out if there was some kind of diabolical uh, business going on. So she instructed Paris's um, uh, Indian uh, slave man uh, to make a witch cake. Uh, and the witch cake, uh, when it was fed to a dog, was supposed to somehow be able to display or exhibit who or what was afflicting the children. And uh, finally, uh, they were pressured by their adult uh, parents and friends to, you know, tell them what was going on, what happened. And uh, finally, after uh, several weeks, if not months, uh, they started naming three locals who they said were afflicting them. And as time went on and as this kind of uh, hysteria fed itself, uh, diabolical things started coming into it. And everyone was very um, susceptible to wanting to believe that some bad things were happening within the community. So the girls um, basically accused uh, Tituba, who was the minister's other uh, Indian slave living in the Paris household, uh, and two other uh, women who lived in the locale who in Europe and in uh, most witchcraft cases are the usual suspects. Older women who have no power, who have some kind of flaws that um, are very visible to the general public. One was Sarah Good. Uh, who seemed like a very old woman, but she was actually in her 30s, uh, had a husband, had uh, several children, but didn't have a home and used to go around begging for uh, places to uh, stay. Uh, 
and the other one was Sarah uh, Osborne, who uh, had a house, did not uh, was known as a sickly woman, uh, did not go to a meeting house very often, and who had uh, had an affair and then married uh, one of her um, uh, uh, Irish uh, helpers uh, once her husband was dead and had kind of a, a, a disreputable uh, uh, figure. Uh, and these became the first three who were accused. And what happened was some of the males within Salem Village um, went over to Salem and uh, swore a warrant against them so the village, uh, the area magistrates could come and examine them and see what was going on. And this was the beginning of the witchcraft. Um, most people who have read or seen anything about witchcraft uh, know that Tituber is one of the chief characters. And she is given probably more um, uh, account of uh, uh, being responsible than perhaps she gets. We don't know what her role really was in the witchcraft. Uh, the 19th century historian said that she was talking tales of witchcraft and voodoo from her native uh, Barbados, and uh, this got the girls upset and excited, and uh, she was the one who brought it forth. But the historic record is pretty quiet about this. So again, what was the spark that helped all of this kindling that of bad feelings uh, within the church, within the civil authorities, uh, uh, within the whole context of uh, uh, possible Indian raids and so forth. What was the real spark that got this going? And that's what keeps Salem witchcraft uh, being a fascinating topic. No, I think, you're, I think you're right. I mean, we've set the table with kindling, and I think these events, this, you know, these accusations are kind of what set the fire. Uh, and so these three people, and as you mentioned, low standing in the community, which is pretty typical, which means that there is very little to lose for the girls. If the girls, you know, if, if let's just say for argument's sake that they had to name a name, they were pressured. Um, these were very safe accusations. They weren't really going to fight back. No one was really going to argue with them on the topic. And if something happened to them, there wasn't really a lot of consequences for it. Uh, so, so. The the two the two Sarahs, Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good, pleaded guilty, but I think Tibetua ended up confessing and saying that there were other witches in the community, which kind of just spun this thing into overdrive, right? Right. Well, when finally magistrates from Salem came over to decide if this was something that was worthy of further legal um, business, um, this was on March first, sixteen ninety two. And it was at the village meeting house, and the place was just packed with people uh, from Salem Village and the neighboring communities because this was a big deal. This was something that didn't have very happen very often. And both Good and Osborne said that they had nothing to do with it. They kind of intimated that they didn't have anything to do with it, but they weren't sure about uh, each other. Uh, when you got to Tituba, um, she confessed. She said, uh, "I've been forced." Uh, by um, this being to afflict the children. And if I didn't, uh, I was going to be killed. And uh, we can read her testimony uh, taken that day by four different people. And it's kind of interesting uh, in, in the context of uh, 
history, uh, how each of the uh, different recordings is a bit different. Sometimes they um, make her look to be a real evil person, and in other uh, of the um, transcriptions, uh, she comes out as uh, just trying to be cooperative and willing to say anything. But in fact, uh, it was Titubo who was the key to the whole thing at the in investigation in that she said that, yes, she's sorry that she was afflicting uh, them, being told to do so, uh, and that there were others uh, who were uh, also in the neighborhood who were also uh, witches. And instead of kind of tamping it down, what normally happened in New England with witchcraft cases is you'd find one or two witchcraft uh, likely suspects, and you would either throw them in jail or hang them, and that would be the end of it. In this case, because of the kindling that was all around Salem Village, um, when they heard that there were other possible witches, this just brought uh, a real hysteria to the area, and they decided they really had to ferret out who, who these other people were who were attacking not only the girls, but the village and the Commonwealth itself. Well, and, and this is kind of where the story gets really interesting. Um, so from what I understand, there was another girl who fell ill, Ann Putnam, and the, name, the last name Putnam is going to be very important as well. Uh, so she also becomes afflicted, and, and she starts naming people. And so there's like another round of accusations. Uh, so Martha Corey is one of them. Uh, Dorothy Good, who's a four-year-old, um, the daughter of Sarah Good, who the, the the homeless person that you mentioned before who had several kids. She was one of them, four years old. Uh, Rebecca Nurse, your um, your ancestor. Uh, and I think what what made these what kind of ratcheted this up is that. Both um, both Rebecca Nurse and Martha Corey were full standing members of the congregation. And so now you've got people being accused who are actually full members of the church, uh, which means, A, that in, if, if people are to believe this, that anyone is, is, can be a target and no one is safe. And that also creates the complete paranoia and hysteria of there, it could be anyone. They're, they're among us all. We have to root everyone out, but you don't know what they look like. They look like you. They look like me. Who knows? Um, so, so what happened here um, on the second round? I'll tell you, you've done your homework. You, you know the important part. Thank you very much. And that was that besides Titaba, who was the one kind of started it, uh, you then got um, Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse accused. And people in today's society don't quite understand how absolutely earth-shaking that was. Because as you mentioned, these were full covenant church members. That means out of a population of 550 people in Salem Village, only 50 were full covenant members of the church, people who could receive communion. The people who had at public meetings declared themselves part of the elect, the ones who were satisfied that they were one of the saved people on earth, of which most weren't. So these people were considered to be, you know, the most upright, upstanding people within the community. And when you could have two of these people actually being witches, that meant you didn't have 
you couldn't you couldn't measure what was going on because here the people who you would never think would be a witch were. Uh, it's it's all right to have an old hag who uh, has gone around cursing uh, the neighbors for years to be a witch because you expect that. But if it's a full covenant member, that means anybody can be a witch. Your brother, your sister, your mother, and whatever. And so this was a profound change so that by April of 1692, it had blossomed full throttle. And people like Ann Putnam, a little... Uh, a 12-year-old uh, daughter of Thomas and Ann Putnam uh, became a chief accuser. And you suddenly had more and more people being accused from little Dorothy Good, maybe four years old, uh, to men being accused, which usually didn't happen, to later on important men being accused, like John Alden, the, the grandson of uh, John and Priscilla Alden, or Philip English, the third most uh, uh, a wealthy person in all of Massachusetts, uh, up and down the the scale of uh, integrity and male and female church members and not members were being accused. And this meant that you had an absolute crisis on your hand uh, in Massachusetts. Well, the funny thing about this is that it was such a pivotal moment in 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 the trial, it, it wasn't really a trial, but in in this historical, a very important historical moment is what I'm trying to say, because when when you had the second round and all of a sudden these high level, highly um, these people with a lot of integrity, a lot of standing, when they're when and a four year old start being accused, you can say two things as a community. You can say, okay, this is ridiculous. It's coming from a couple of is coming from kids nine to 14 or whatever let's take a closer look at this because i know rebecca nurse i know um you know i know martha Corey. these are good people let's let's think about this or you can say oh my god this is crazy like they're witches too like this is and then go in the other direction you know and the community decided to go in the other direction i'm you know no judgment for me but it's just one of these funny moments where you look back and you're like oh man if they'd only decided to use a little bit of rationale at this one moment none of this stuff would have happened um but one point i want to make while we're talking about this is that and we'll get to some of this stuff, hopefully, if we have time later on to figure out some of the underlying reasonings for this. But one of the things I want to mention is Ann Putnam um, and the Putnams and the Porters were involved, uh, from what I understand, in a land dispute. Uh, there were two prominent members of, of the community, and there's kind of a land grab going on here. And Rebecca Nurse was related to the Porter family. So you kind of have this political thing where, you know... You wonder, was Ann Putnam, I think later on, uh, she kind of admitted to some of this stuff, but were they accusing innocent people in an attempt to kind of get them out of the way for their own, their, their, the family's own ideas? You know, they kind of saw an opportunity in, in the hysteria and kind of used it for their own, you know, the, the, their own ends. Um, but let's, let's, let's move on with this story. So once everyone starts being accused, we got to have a trial. And so this is kind of a complicated time in Massachusetts history, and I'm, I'm going to let you talk about it in a second, but I believe that the, the, there was a, the charter for the, for, the, for the community was was revoked, and so you couldn't have, like, real trials there. So the governor, um, first he granted a reprieve, but then there was an outcry, so he, he couldn't do that. So he had to establish some form of, of um of court and so i believe uh i'm gonna get this name wrong but the court of oyer and terminer was kind of established to hear all these stories is that correct 
I don't want to get into, you know, we can get into the minutiae and, and everybody falls asleep. But basically in 1692, there wasn't an official government in Massachusetts. They were waiting for a new charter from England and a new governor. And the new governor didn't arrive until um, May of 1692. So from March till May, all of these preliminary hearings were taking place in which the magistrates would hear evidence and decide if they should keep the people or not. And in every case, the people were thrown in jail to await further developments. So that meant that these little jails in Massachusetts were filling up and bursting at the seams. So the new governor comes, William Phipps, who was appointed by uh, the king, and uh, he sees that there's an absolute crisis as he gets off the boat. So what's he to do? Well, he establishes before new elections are held, before a new legislature is put together, he's got to do something. So what he does, he appoints a special court of Oyer and Terminer to hear and determine. And this court, he appoints a number of uh, commissioners, judges to it, who will hear the cases and dispatch them. Uh, and um, beginning in June, you get the establishment of the court system. And um, what you have to understand is these, this was not a kangaroo court. Um, people in England would have looked at this court as good as any court in England. It's just that uh, today when we think about the court system, we think of how laborious it is and how long it takes to get anything done and all of the paperwork. Um, at that time, um, justice was very swift. They didn't have prisons as such, so, so you couldn't throw somebody into jail for 15 years. You had to do something, uh, and that often was with minor offenses. You would brand people or you would cut off an ear, or you would find them, or you would whip them, but you couldn't put them in jail for long periods of time. In capital cases, they had to determine pretty fast whether or not the person was guilty, and if so, if they should be executed. So the courts were established according to the best principles of uh, English jurisprudence, uh, but it meant that the trials... Um, uh, were relatively quick. And you also had grand juries. Grand juries would listen to the evidence and determine whether or not an indictment should be put on the person. Uh, almost all of the witches had indictments put on them, either one or multiple ones. And then they would be tried by a jury of their peers. Uh, they were peers who were... Um, church members and who uh, own property, but at least they were common people uh, who would listen to what the judges said that they should consider as evidence, but still were independent to give um, uh, their verdict. And uh, beginning in June, we have the first um, trial, and that's of Bridget Bishop, a woman who had a lot of stuff against her. There weren't any no, lawyers. No, no lawyers, don't forget. Yeah, oh, there you go. Yeah, that no lawyers. Sorry, um, But that's not unusual. There's no lawyers anyplace in, in the world at the time. Uh, the judges are supposed to be the people who represent both uh, the accused and the accusers, and evidence is presented. Uh, you do have um, uh, uh, the... Um, uh, 
man responsible for the the case, uh, the uh, attorney general of of the province who uh, does the case for the state. Uh, But people can uh, bring in witnesses of their own. Uh, They can uh, uh, say this juror is uh, prejudiced. I don't want him uh, uh, on the panel. Uh, And uh, they can bring in evidence. Unfortunately, you're talking about people who were, uh, in some cases, couldn't even read or write and didn't really know the way of doing things. So with few exceptions, most of them just went along with whatever they were told to do in court. But um, what you find is that uh, in the early days, uh, it was the people who were accused but who would not confess to being witches who were tried first. Uh, And during this period of time in which you get about 150 people accused, of that 150 people, 50 of them actually confessed to being witches. And although today we know what that means, that it's not quite as uh, uncomplicated as, uh, you know, no innocent person would ever say he's guilty. Well, in fact, they sometimes do. It's not unusual. And you get 50 people confessing and then giving evidence uh, of other people. So the court system goes after those who won't confess. And all of them are found guilty. So that eventually by October of 1692, you have 19 executions and you have um, the court, which is supposed to continue into the new year with more hangings. Uh, but other things develop, and basically uh, the witchcraft by October of 1692 uh, pretty much um, dies of its own weight. Well, so none of the – I want to bring up one one important point here because this, this kind of blew my mind. So we have a court – you know, like you said, it's not a kangaroo court. I mean, this is a real legitimate court. I mean, some of the rules by our standards are not necessarily what would we consider to be a fair trial, although it does redefine a speedy trial in some ways. Um, but the thing that really causes these court cases to exist, because otherwise there's no evidence. We're talking about hearsay. It's, oh, you're a witch, you're a witch, you're a witch. How do you prove that? Well, it turns out that there's one very specific thing that all these cases are based on, and that's spectral evidence. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to outline what spectral evidence is, which is basically being afflicted by some kind of ghostly or unseen means. And, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the belief was that, um, a person has to give the devil permission to use their shape to afflict someone. And if the afflicted person claims to see someone, it must be because the devil gave them their permission. Uh, this was admitted as evidence. And so basically I mean, this is irrefutable evidence because the afflicted person is saying, I saw that person. You know, it's almost like, um, you know, visual identity. It's, you know, it's eyewitness. This could be used to level suspicion, but not really condemn someone, if I'm, if I'm correct on there. And I believe to convict someone, you had to either get a confession out of them, as you said, or you had to have two people give eyewitness testimony that they saw this black magic existing. So... Um, it's kind of difficult to do that part, but this spectral evidence, anyone can kind of claim it, which is what's kind of running rampant in this whole thing. Uh, so this went on, and as you said, people were, you know, were executed, but, and it kind of ended when spectral evidence was no longer allowed to be used in court. Did I summarize that pretty well? Yes, yeah. Uh, spectral evidence was pretty much 
thrown out in old Europe by this time. In uh, the case of Salem, the chief magistrate uh, of the uh, uh, court of Euer and Terminer, uh, William Stoughton, believed that God would not allow an innocent person, Spectre, to go and do evil. So he kept it in. During the entire witchcraft debate in the upper class with the ministers and, and uh, uh, the more intellectual, there was discussion about, well, is this true? Uh, but in the court itself, it was believed as valid evidence. And you are true in saying that um, to convict a witch, you had to have the testimony of two or more people, that someone was doing diabolical things. And the catch-22 here was the fact that they got that information from looking at the original transcriptions of the preliminary hearings when a person was arrested and brought before the magistrates and examined. Because at each one of these preliminary hearings, the afflicted children were always present. And they would start at some point, usually in almost every case, uh, going into fits and... Um, claiming that they had been bitten by the specter of the, the person uh, under arrest and would give this testimony. The testimony would be written down, and then at the trial itself, months later, it would be reread to the court, indicating that these afflicted children were, in fact, in open um, uh, meeting, uh, being afflicted by the witch in front of them. So, and it wasn't uh, the common people who were saying this. It was these afflicted people, uh, mainly children, mainly girls, but there were, on a few cases, uh, a couple of boys who were afflicted and some um, matronly uh, women. But this little cadre of uh, about um, uh, 15 or 18 people were the ones who were using the spectral evidence to indicate that uh, witchcraft was afoot. And so, so because of this, you know, like you said, we've got all these, we've got, execu we've got um, executions that run out. I think it's 19 people executed, one pressed, five die in jail, and two dogs. Is that number correct? Yes. Uh, so now let's just hit some of the high points of this because there's some very interesting aspects of some of the people who were executed. So first of all, you mentioned Bridget Bishop. She was the first one to be executed on June 10th. Uh, can you quickly tell me why her case was the one who was first? Um, because, you know, obviously the, the, the two Sarah, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne were accused first. Bridget Bishop isn't accused until much later on. But hers is the first to be tried and she's the first to be executed. Why is that? Yeah, well, the attorney general, who's supposed to represent the state and bring the um, uh, 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 people to, uh, uh, to the court system, looks at uh, who's um, not confessed and who's the best candidate uh, to get a conviction. And he chooses Bridget Bishop, because Bridget Bishop uh, was uh, a woman of ill repute, uh, one who had... Uh, uh, tried to always live above her station uh, in Salem Town, and uh, one who had been accused of practicing witchcraft earlier. And there was so much testimony, hearsay testimony, by people re remembering things that Bridget uh, had done uh, in the past, uh, as well as the uh, testimony of the afflicted children, that this was like a slam dunk. So let's make the first case a real good one, 
uh, knowing that uh, they've got the evidence. And she was uh, uh, tried by herself, found guilty, and uh, hanged uh, in uh, June of 1692. Uh, the rest of the executions were like multiple ones in which they would have uh, a session of the court that went on for about two weeks, and they would uh, try maybe four to eight people at a time uh, during that uh, week uh, of testimony and um, uh, would then have a multiple execution. Yeah, there were four execution dates. It was June 10th, July 19th, August 19th, and September 22nd. So just four dates with, for, for 19 people. Now, so, so the other one I want to talk about is Rebecca Nurse, your, your descendant. Um, so she was, she was actually found not guilty. And then the kind of the, the afflicted girls kind of freak out in court. The judge asks the jury to reconsider and then she's found guilty, um, which, as I mentioned about the land grab, Porter versus Putnam, uh, this kind of, you know, reeks of an inside job. You know what I mean? Um, but I found that to be very interesting. And then George Burroughs, who th- this is this, this is the part where I just this one kind of blows my mind. Um, George Burroughs, second, the second person to, to run the congregation in Salem. Um, he was hanged. Now, it, is, it was said that if you could recite the Lord's Prayer without mistake, you couldn't possibly be um, being affected by any devil. The devil wouldn't allow that to happen or it wasn't possible. On the gallows, he perfectly recites the Lord's Prayer, um, to, to much to the point where he brings an emotional response out of his audience. Um, and, you know, again, this is a feat thought to be impossible, and yet he's still hanged. And the reason that people give is that the devil made it possible, um, or the devil recited it to him or whispered in his ear or something. But this breaks their own rules. I mean, like, if you, know, if you can find a reason outside of anything, then why do the rules exist in the first place? And you hang an innocent you know, religious man. To me, this is, the, this is the most egregious hanging of them all. Um, but uh, at, least, at least it speaks to the hypocrisy of the time. But... Um, but yeah, that that one just kind of drives me crazy. And then there's Cor, uh, Corey or Gills Corey. So he's the guy who's pressed to death, right? Yeah. L- let me go through all, all three, uh, hopefully very briefly. Uh, uh, the thing about land grab uh, that was a very popular theory in the 19th century, uh, but it really doesn't hold up a lot of water. Um, uh, Puritans were contentious. Uh, they're always going to court, much more so than Americans do today, concerning land, because land was uh, the, the real value. Uh, and everyone was always in contention. Uh, the Nurse family only rented the property with option to buy, so they didn't directly uh, own the property or um, be contentious with the Putnam family because of the property itself. Um, however, if you have a long-standing dispute with one of your neighbors, it's much easier to believe that that neighbor is a witch than someone who is a nice neighbor to you, so that you get that kind of a psychological thing happening. Not to say there wasn't uh, uh, some kind of uh, interest in people's land, but it wasn't the thing that uh, brought this forth. Uh, Rebecca Nurse was the only person who initially was found uh, not guilty. And uh, when that happened in uh, court, when the jury came back, the girls went into such uh, terrible uh, hysteria uh, that hadn't been seen before 
that it struck everybody as being absolutely uh, 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 unbelievable. And one of the judges asked Rebecca a question, um, and she didn't answer it. Uh, she was hard of hearing. She probably didn't even hear it. And the magistrate instructed them with that in mind to go back and come uh, and deliberate a little bit longer. Um, Rebecca did have some connections, uh, and she got a reprieve from the governor for a period of time. Uh, but her case is somewhat exceptional, and in fact, she was eventually uh, hanged. Um, George Burroughs, imagine he is a minister, and here you have in Salem uh, uh, witchcraft an actual minister being executed. Many people thought he was like the ringleader of it. He was a minister, but he wasn't a good Puritan minister. He had a lot of things against him in his personal life. We think that maybe he was a wife beater. Uh, there is some evidence to indicate that. We do know that he liked to go around espousing that uh, he knew stuff that other people didn't know or that he was very strong. And in non-witchcraft days, that's something that gives you good status. But once witchcraft comes around, it's something that makes you be... Uh, maybe in league with the devil. Uh, he had a, he had left Salem Village in the 1680s and uh, had been uh, brought back from living on the frontier of Maine and living through two major Indian raids on his village to come back to Salem Village to be found uh, guilty and executed. The idea about saying the Lord's Prayer or doing other things like saying the Ten Commandments uh, was the folk idea about witchcraft. It wasn't within the legal system. Uh, at trials, they often would ask people if they could say the Lord's Prayer or recite the Ten Commandments. But that wasn't considered valid evidence. It was more like a, a folk uh, evidence. And uh, when he was on the ladder waiting to be executed and said the Lord's Prayer, which many people in open court couldn't do because they'd be so nervous they'd screw it up. But on the ladder, he said it. And that was one day that uh, Reverend Cotton Mather, the, the most important of all of the theologians in Massachusetts, was there. And he said that probably the devil was uh, giving him the information as he uh, uh, was on the ladder. Uh, it did affect the people there, but since he had a, a valid uh, execution order, he was executed. And then finally, uh, Giles Corey, one of the more interesting of the characters. He was an old, crusty guy, probably not one that you would be happy to be a neighbor with. Uh, he had... Uh, probably my, by mistake, given evidence against his own wife. When he was finally brought up uh, as a, a suspect in the witchcraft uh, and eventually brought to trial, there was a form when you were brought to trial, and that was, will you be uh, tried by uh, uh, the king in this court? And it was a formulaic thing in which you said, I, I will. And um, he refused to say that, the formula that would allow him to be tried. So that meant that they couldn't go on with the, with the trial. 
I think what he was doing, uh, an old man, he had been accused of killing one of his servants uh, years earlier, was he knew what the thing was here. He knew that every person who had been tried had been found guilty and hanged. So he decided he just wasn't going to cooperate. And because of that, they couldn't go through with the trial. But what they could do was impose an old um, uh, um, uh, system of trying to get him to plea to uh, be tried. And what they did was they tortured him. They put heavy weights on him. And um, he succumbed to that. And then they said, uh, well, this was a good example of him uh, self-killing himself. He committed suicide because he wouldn't uh, uh, go on trial, and therefore they condemned him for that. But it was, I think, his exquisite way of saying, the hell with you and, and your court. I'll tell you, one of my favorite witchcraft victims is a guy named uh, George Jacobs. Jacobs, when brought to the preliminary hearing and knowing the background of what happened before him, was um, being examined by all of the uh, 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 magistrates and finally said to them, well, burn me or hang me, but I'll stand in the truth of Christ. I know nothing of witchcraft. And uh, he was one of those who was hanged on August 19, 1692. And we actually have at the Rebecca Nurse Homestead, which is still uh, present as a historic uh, house uh, property uh, in Danvers, we have a little family burial ground where Rebecca Nurse, uh, after her execution, is supposed to have had her body brought back for burial. Um, same thing happened with George Jacobs. Um, and back in the 1960s, um, his bones uh, became available, and I had custody for them uh, over a number of years. And in 1992, when we had our 300th anniversary celebrations of the witchcraft, funny to call it a celebration, but I can get into that later if you want, um, we actually had a religious service and a reproduction meeting house and buried uh, Jacobs uh, in the nurse burial ground, and we now have a slate marker for him that has his uh, epitaph there, will burn me or hang me, but I'll stand in the truth of Christ. So a lot of these people have very interesting individual histories to them, uh, which, again, is one of the things that makes uh, Salem witchcraft such a fascinating thing. Uh, no, I totally agree. Um, so we got to wrap it up here. So I'm just going to put a little button on this. All these people were tried, executed. Then spectral evidence is deemed inadmissible. The governor's wife is accused of witchcraft. And both of those things kind of put the nail in the coffin on this whole witch trial thing. Uh, so it kind of peters out, as you said, towards the end of 1692, early 1693. Um, so with this over, can you quickly summarize the aftermath of these trials? Uh, those of us who lived through Vietnam remember that um, once uh, 1975 came along and, and Vietnam was over, for about a generation, nobody talked about it. Just didn't want to talk about it anymore. Uh, and that's what happened even more so with the Salem witchcraft. Uh, once the trials were over, with a few exceptions, uh, a couple people wrote uh, some tracts which got uh, some readership. Most people wanted to just forget about it. 
uh, a little recompense was given to some of the uh, uh, victims still alive, um, but um, they just didn't talk about it anymore. And although historians in the 19th century picked up the story and wrote popular books on it, um, as a kid growing up in Danvers in the 1950s, uh, I can remember that uh, even into the early 60s, uh, with Salem witchcraft, you just didn't talk about it in polite society because too many people here mentioned before how I'm related to a bunch of witches. Well, everybody who's an old townie in the area are related to witches or people who helped hang them. Uh, and it became a thing in which uh, there was a lot of um, uh, guilt uh, here, the civil authorities, the religious authorities, in many cases, the families themselves had failed the people who were accused of witchcraft. And most people thought nothing good came of it, so let's just not talk about it. Uh, over in Salem, things happened a little bit, bit differently uh, because by the late 19th century in Salem town, uh, Witchcraft kind of became metamorphosized in that um, you took it more as kind of a silly little time in which um, uh, you would remember the witches on broomsticks with uh, conical hats and uh, crooked noses. And since Salem was a place that always used tourism as an important part of their uh, economy, uh, they kind of uh, took took witchcraft um, uh, as a an interesting sidelight to history. Um, this was before the time that uh, Salem became a, a, a haven for uh, Wiccans, uh, modern religious believers in witchcraft, which is absolutely, totally different from the historic witchcraft of 1692. So things did change. And, and before we finish, I, I do want to mention when, when you were talking about um, today, we look back at those funny Puritans and think how, how terribly unsophisticated they were, how unscientific they were. How could they believe in such a thing like that? But we still have witch hunts all the time in America and elsewhere. And you had mentioned, you know, the, the idea about terrorism and, and um Arabs and stuff like that. Throughout history, you get another Salem witch hunt happening. Uh, World War II, beginning of uh, Japanese um, attack Pearl Harbor. And suddenly the Japanese, who look different than most Americans do, uh, thought to be a scourge. And they're put in, in essence, American citizens by the tens of thousands are put in concentration camps because we can't trust them. We don't do that with the Italian-Americans or the German-Americans, but we do with the Japanese-Americans. Or some of the, the, the people who are listening to this might remember the Ami McCarthy hearings, in which in the early 1950s, late 40s, we had a, another witch scare, and it was a red scare, that commies were under our bed and that they were infecting uh, our community. Um, in more recent times, if you remember back in the 1980s, all of those uh, nursery school teachers who were accused of being sexual predators uh, on, their on the, the children they were taking care of throughout the entire United States uh, were th thrown in jail for long terms, 30, 40 years at a time, all on evidence that was basically not there. So 
in our own time, we can't say, oh, those silly Puritans, they were so ridiculous. Uh, we have to remember that in our own time, we have to confront our own kind of witch scares with integrity and bravery, understanding that being afraid of something you don't understand, you can't use illogical, unreasonable uh, means of uh, trying to protect yourself. You have to be clear-eyed and uh, understand uh, the, the difference between reality and boogeymen. Beautifully said. Um, you, you can't, you know, fear, it's a human trait to be scared of things, and it's also a human trait to ridiculously overreact to that fear. <laughs> so we will unfortunately never be free of witch hunts. Um, so let's talk about how people can get in touch with you. Um, you've got an incredible book out on this subject. Um, so let, let's end it with the promo stuff, Richard. What, what, where can people find your book? Where can people find you if they want to visit Danvers? Uh, I'm at the Danvers Archival Center. I'm the town archivist. Uh, we uh, uh, are not a tourist uh, community. Salem is that. And right now they're uh, undergoing their uh, yearly um, uh, remembrance of uh, Halloween. Um, I'm located at the Peabody Institute Library in Danvers. And we have here um, probably the best collection of books and uh, pamphlets on the subject of Salem witchcraft. Uh, I did have a book that came out back in the 90s. It's still in print. It's um, uh, called The Devil Hath Been Raised. Uh, and um, it's, a, it's a book of uh, documents. I've, I've always said that I'll never write a book specifically on the entire Salem witchcraft case because having been involved in this for over 50 years, I know I just couldn't do it. It's too vast a, a subject for me. Richard, I want to thank you for being on the program today. You've really shed some light on what is one of my favorite American topics uh, and definitely something I've wanted to jump into for a long time. So thank you so much for being on the program. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And thank you to everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and was created by me, Daniel J. Glenn. This week's episode was produced by Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you want to check out more on Fascinating Nouns, go to the website fascinatingnouns.com where you can link to Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and all the amazing things that we're getting into. Even a YouTube page where we have interactive supplemental material just for you fascinatingnouns.com. Thank you. End of transmission.